Okay, rather than beginning with the first commandment, um, as we use the mnemonic device to remember what the commandments are, let's begin with verse the third commandment. What does three rhyme with? What does three rhyme with? Tree. What do you think of when you think of a tree? Not green leaves or orange or red leaves. What is that supposed to remind us of? We think of the Ten Commandments. Tree, tree. Boom. On your foot. Very good. On your foot. And this is just a reminder. Oftentimes when something bad like that happens to us, we may have a temptation to take the name of the Lord in vain and to speak derogatorily of Him or whatever. Therefore, the third commandment is... <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> what is the third commandment? Okay. Thou shalt not... Take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Excellent. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Four rhymes with what? Door. And when you think of a door, you think of the church doors. Therefore, the fourth commandment is... Right. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And then the commandment goes on from there. Five rhymes with... Hive. Very good. Um, someone suggested to me, I think Sandy suggested to me other, the other day, what you need to remember is, beehive. <laughs> no, no, no. Anyhow, that's sort of an accented way of putting it. So what do you think of when you think of five hive? We should have started with the first one. <laughs> sort of gets you geared up as we go along. <clears throat> Who told you not to go near the hive? <clears throat> Your parents. Therefore, the fifth commandment is... <laughs> Your father and mother. Okay. Thank you, Jill. <clears throat> okay. Six rhymes with what? Now, you have to get this one. This is the one we're on. Six rhymes with... Sticks. Six sticks. Which reminds you of what? Whacking. Whacking someone. Very good. But you could you could picture that quite well. You just watch kids with sticks and it happens immediately. So the sixth commandment is what? Very good. Do not kill. It's printed at the bottom of your bulletin. Short but sweet. Let's Read those three, those four words aloud together. You shall not murder. Let's join together in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Father, as we come to your word together this morning, we desire to be submissive before you because we recognize that our lives are in your hands. Frequently we believe that we are in control of every aspect of our lives. When we believe this, we forget the fact that you are supreme, you are sovereign, things go according to your plan and not according to ours. And as we look at your word together this morning, we ask that you would create in us submissive and humble hearts to repent of our sins, to submit to your will, that your will might be done. And Lord, 
As I deliver this message, I pray that my words would be in keeping with your word because your word is holy in partaking of your nature. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how many of you have read or heard this story. The story goes that there was a man, a Hindu priest it happened to be, who was walking along a mountain path. And as he came around a corner... He saw another man struggling desperately holding something in his hands. And when he got close enough to him, he saw that the man was holding the tail of a lion in his hands through a crack in a rock. And the man was just, the the tail of the lion was being pulled in the other direction, and the man was pulling in this direction. And between guests, the man holding the lion's tail explained to him that he had been walking along the same path and he had come upon this tail and he realized that there was a lion around the corner and if he didn't grab it by the tail, the lion would capture him and eat him. And so he took a hold of the tail and he realized his only hope was to keep that lion on the other side of the crack of the rocks. And the only way he could do that was by holding that tail. So he begged the Hindu priest, please, While I hold his tail, I can't hold out much longer. Go around and kill this lion or it will kill me. The Hindu priest had stood there and listened very quietly. And he said, I'm sorry I cannot do that. My religious beliefs prevent me from taking the life of anything. I cannot do what you ask. And the man said, can't you see I am just about to give way? Please kill the lion. I'm sorry, I am not prevented. I'm not, I'm not able to do that because my beliefs prevent me. And the man who happened to be a farmer said to him, then please at least take a hold of his tail so that I can kill him. How many of you heard the story? Oh, this is great. Please take a hold of that tail so I can kill him. And the Hindu priest stood there for a moment and he thought to himself, there is nothing that prevents me from doing that. So he grabbed a hold of that tail, and all of a sudden, the fight commenced to do. He was holding onto the tail. You can just picture him holding onto that tail. A lion struggling on the other end, trying to get loose. <coughs> he said, Now quickly, go around and kill the lion. And the farmer walked way out around the rock, and he could hear the lion roaring at him from the other side of the rock. He could see the man walking beyond the lion. And he kept walking. He said, come back, come back. Are you not going to kill this lion? You must kill him because he's getting the best of me. The man said, I have been convinced by your religious convictions. It is impossible for me to kill a living thing. And he went on his way. We treat human life the taking of human life as a theoretical question until it comes into our own lives and becomes a threat to us personally. That story perfectly illustrates that point. As long as it's someone else's life, we can hold it out there as a theoretical question, something that we do not have to deal with. And yet what we are told in Scripture is not only that we must deal with it on a very personal level, you shall not murder. In other words, it's not something that we are to be involved in committing. 
But we are also told, as the verse at the bottom of the order of worship of your bulletin indicates so clearly, rescue those being led away to death, hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Death, murder, killing, these are not to be things which we stop, we do not commit ourselves. They are also to be things that we are to be actively involved in preventing occurring in our community and our culture. Last week we looked at those, excuse me, we looked at those occasions when killing of humans is sanctioned by God and his word. Specifically in war, when the government introduces war. The people who introduce it for the government are responsible to see that it is just. But those who are called up to serve in the army are justified according to scripture. Further, it is justified in cases of uh, justice, when justice requires it. For instance, the taking of human life is supposed to be paid for by the taking of human life. Now, there are certain um, extraneous or, or um, extenuating circumstances regarding that, and we'll get to those a little bit today. But today, let us look at murder. Let us look at what is involved in murder. And first, I would like us to start close at home and look at murder in thought. Murder in hearts, in minds. This is the area where most likely we will have to grapple most seriously with this issue on a personal level. Because Christ revealed striking truths from his heavenly perspective in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, which is what we're looking at, the long ago quotation of that, do not murder. He goes on to say, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, which is also a quote from the Old Testament. Christ goes on to say, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of hell, fire of hell. And in 1 John 3.15 we read, anyone who hates his brother is what? A murderer. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Therefore, you and I cannot be content saying, We have not committed this deed. I have not taken an axe or a gun or a knife to someone else and killed them. But as spiritual people concerned with spiritual realities and the truth of our relationship with the Heavenly Father, we must be not concerned with just those things that we can be punished for in a physical way in our physical world. We must also be concerned with spiritual realities for which there is spiritual judgment and spiritual punishment, as Christ spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount. We must be concerned with the attitudes of our hearts. And this is what we have been seeing throughout the Ten Commandments, and we see it expounded in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament and elsewhere throughout Scripture. But God says... I am not just concerned that you obey the letter of the law. I'm also concerned that you obey the spirit of the law. And how your heart looks at these things and the attitudes of your mind are as important as the deeds that you commit. And so when we look at this commandment, we realize that God is concerned as much with the way that we treat the person who is driving on the road in front of us who stops suddenly without warning. What is our heart's attitude towards that person? What is our heart's attitude when a fellow student does better than we do on a test and then mocks us for our poorer performance? What is our attitude towards that 
friend or a fellow student who performs better than we do on the sports field and then makes fun of us. Our attitude towards a family member who treats us disgracefully or a co-worker or another individual who treats us as though we're incompetent or don't count or whatever. How do we respond? These are the times which test our obedience to this command probably most consistently. (coughs) Our ability to avoid murder and hatred in our heart also keeps us from murder demonstrated by our actions. So let us look at those things that promote murder. Hatred, jealousy, and anger are the fathers of murder. These attack the mind and the heart, and they result in attitudes, spiritually speaking, that are the equivalent, as Christ has showed us, of murder. Hatred, jealousy, anger, these sorts of attitudes, that's not the complete list. These sorts of attitudes are attitudes which we are told in Scripture are the equivalent of murder in our hearts. Why does a man pull out a gun at a stoplight and shoot the person sitting in the car next to him? Well, we find a frightening trend in our community, not, not specifically in our community, in our culture, in which people do it just for the fun of it. But more oftenly, it is done because of uncontrolled fury over the appearance or actions or words of the person in the next car. Patience, acts of passion, attitudes that are uncontrolled. Some of us know people who have murdered others. Many of us have been in situations where, but for the grace of God and the fact that we employ great self-control, we could possibly have found ourselves guilty of murder. This is why it is so important for us to grow in God's grace and in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because these are the positive attitudes. If we take out hatred, we take out anger, we take out fury, and do not replace them with anything, as the parable tells us in the Gospels, these will return and even worse things will come to inhabit our hearts and our minds. We have to replace them with godly replacements and the fruits of the Spirit of the godly replacements. You and I have many people who would be or are our enemies. Perhaps a fellow student in school who does anything that he can to anger and mock you. If you think back to high school or junior high days, if you were beyond that at this point in time, if you were there right now, I I would venture to wager that every single one of us can think of a student who made fun of each one of us as individuals during that period of time for one reason or another. I can remember there were twins in my high school, and one of them was in my Bible class. It was a fitting place for it to happen, but he decided that the way that he could make the class laugh and uh, get at me was to cough whenever I did which gave him plenty of opportunities. <coughs> we gave him plenty of opportunities this morning, too. But uh, what happens is people in these kinds of situations pick those things that they feel we are most vulnerable about, and they stick in the knife, and they turn it, and they turn it, and they turn it. 
These are the times when you and I have to figure out whether God has created us as creatures to commit murder through the attitudes of our hearts or whether He has created us to be illustrative of Him, to be examples of which He is the greatest example. In other words, will we respond to these sorts of things in kind or will we respond as He would have us respond? I would encourage... Those of you who are kids, to beware of ever being the fool in your class who makes fun of others. This is the flip side of do not commit murder. Because we can commit actions and do things which cause others to have these attitudes boil up in their hearts. And it is ungodly to encourage other people to commit these sins in their hearts. And the other side of the coin... Those of you who are students in school, because these things, I think, happen so much more frequently in schools. It's just sort of a hothouse for this type of nastiness. Beware of allowing fellow students to cause you to commit murder in your heart towards them. No matter how ridiculous or stupid, and this is for all of us, other people make us out to be. It is not worth committing murder for, particularly as by hating other people, we are not only hating them and committing murder, we are also dishonoring the Lord God. If you or I then are the object of ridicule or disfavor, we need to turn to God's word to find out how we must respond. Not to respond out of the sinful attitudes of our heart in hatred seeking revenge. God tells us this in Matthew 5.44, further on the Sermon on the Mount. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. This is the way in which you and I move far from murder, whether in heart or deed, and grow in becoming more like God. This lesson, of course, applies not only to school kids, but to every single one of us. When we have enemies at work in the community, perhaps in our homes with relatives, in church or anywhere that we find enemies. It is an an issue that that I think if each one of us were honest about, and I certainly would be honest about it, it's an issue to struggle with manfully. It is a very difficult issue because it is not easy to love and pray for those whose every word, it seems, and every action is designed to put us in a bad light, to create trouble for us, to be at enmity with us, to alienate our friends from us, it is extremely difficult to love and to pray for these people. We move on from murder by thought and attitude to consider those times when it is done in fact. In other words, actually committed in deed. Numbers 35, 22 and following says this, but if without hostility someone suddenly pushes another or throws something at him unintentionally, unintentionally, or without seeing him, drops a stone on him that could kill him and he dies. And since he was not his enemy and he did not intend to harm him, the assembly must judge between him and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood. In other words, not allow a person to, to kill him for committing murder. And send the one who committed the unintentional murder, back to the city of refuge to which he fled. He must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. (laughs) But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city, 
of refuge to which he has fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the city, the avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. In other words, if he leaves the city of refuge, the avenger of blood finds him outside of the city, he may kill the man who committed the unintentional crime, and it's not held against him. The accused must stay in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may he return to his own property. These are to be legal requirements for you throughout the generations to come, wherever you, wherever you live. Accidental deaths do happen. In the Old Testament, here is described as um, someone pushing another person, throwing something at him, dropping a stone or something on the person, and without intending it, with no hatred in his heart, no enmity there, the other person dies as a result of some accident. Another example in Scripture is where someone's ox get, gets loose and it gores some person who happens to be walking by, and the person gored by your ox dies. Well, according to Scripture, you're responsible for the actions of your animals, which is an interesting thought. <laughs> but... <clears throat> Scripture tells us something interesting about this in Exodus 21-29 with regard to oxes, your ox goring someone else. If you have been told your ox is dangerous, he almost gored me, and then your ox gets loose and kills someone, then you forfeit your life because you were warned that this was a life-threatening situation. If you have not been told that, you are not guilty. You do not forfeit your life. The only thing that I would point out with regard to this accidental death and the long passage that I read from Numbers 35 is this. The person who has committed accidental death and flees to the cities of refuge and they were spread evenly throughout the country is protected as long as they remain inside the city of refuge. But what does that tell us? I think one thing that it tells us specifically is this. If you consider it to be to have been a serious and terrible thing that you did, even though you did it accidentally, you will remain in the city of refuge. Does that make sense? If you consider it to be something that you feel terrible about, because you actually did take a human life, even though accidentally, you'll stay in the city of refuge. If you say in your heart, oh, well, it was just a so-and-so, just Joe Schmo, nobody really cares about him anyway. <laughs> I mean, I, I really didn't mean to do it, and really it wasn't my fault, and and blah, 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 all these sort of extenuating um, excuses, you'll leave the city of refuge because you don't really take any responsibility for it because you don't think feel so badly about it. Because after all, there's a hundred people in that family. You leave the city of refuge. So I think what Scripture is telling us is those who take murder seriously, having committed it unintentionally, will remain in the city of refuge. Those who think it really wasn't a big deal or excuses can excuse me, they'll leave. Those are the people who are open to being executed outside the city of refuge. What this tells us is that even if, it, even if we are involved in it and something we do kills someone unintentionally, it is a terrible thing. It is a terrible thing. It is, it is good for us as a people to be racked with guilt, even if we have taken a life unintentionally. There is nothing the matter with that. It is appropriate. <clears throat> Murders are committed throughout Scripture in passion, 
premeditated and coolly planned in many different ways. Moses, for instance, killed the Egyptian leader who was beating the Hebrew slave. David coolly premeditated and killed by proxy Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, who he had committed adultery with. Naboth, the one who owned the vineyard that Ahab wanted, was coolly and premeditatedly murdered by proxy by Jezebel and by her husband Ahab. It is interesting to note in those passages about Naboth, Ahab, and Jezebel that when the prophet Elisha came to Ahab to convict him of this crime, all we see in Scripture is that Elijah was, or excuse me, Ahab was fussing. He had gone and laid down on his bed and he was complaining. I can't get that vineyard because Naboth won't sell it to me. And his wife came in and said, Aren't you the king? Yes, I'm the king, but I can't get that vineyard. Buck up, boy. So he bucked up, and she went out and laid the plans to have Naboth killed, and he was killed. And when the prophet came to Ahab, he said, Because you have murdered. What we see from this is when the action is committed, if we have participated in any way in that action, we are guilty of it. Ahab, therefore, must have known that's what his wife was planning. Jezebel planned it. She didn't commit it. She was completely as guilty as the men who brought the false testimony and those who stoned Naboth. We may find ourselves more frequently in the part of the murder that being committed indeed by silence agreeing when we allow others to be murdered and do nothing to prevent it. That's what Ahab did. He knew Jezebel was going out and plotting a plan to kill Naboth. He did nothing. <clears throat> that is where our passage from Proverbs 24:11 and following comes in. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, <clears throat> we knew nothing of this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? In other words, we have a principle in in our law and in our practical everyday lives, which is deniability. We have seen this practice illustrated in various presidencies. I'm not getting into whether this was actually the case, but people are constantly claiming that deniability is a factor. If If I can say I knew nothing of it, then... You have to believe me. What God's saying here is, it's not a question of whether or not man believes you. When you say, I knew nothing of this murder, God is the one who weighs the heart. He knows whether or not you had an opportunity to stop it and knew it was going to occur. This is why you and I must take so seriously the violence of killing in our land, and particularly of killing the unborn through abortion. God does not allow us to escape the guilt by saying we didn't do it. What he is dealing with here in this passage is the issue of our silent agreement. History has it that a monk was at the Roman Games at Colosseum. He witnessed the sport of gladiators in which two or more men went out onto the field and fought to the death. I may have used this illustration before, but it's, it's 
perfect for this situation. He was appalled by what he saw, and rather than sit tight, silently agreeing to the murder of one man by another, as the vast crowd was doing in their enthusiasm, he tried to stop the killing. He could not make his voice heard, so he finally went down onto the field to shout that it was wrong, that it must stop. <clears throat> the crowd grew silent as they saw him out there. He succeeded in in an appalling way because he could not by any means stop the gladiators from fighting. Finally, he stepped between them and they stopped long enough for one to kill him. (coughs) For the people, that wasn't part of the game. They were sickened by this religious man's murder and thus followed the end of murder for sport in the Roman Colosseums. It is when murder is a legal and accepted practice that the world so desperately needs men and women like that monk who will not do as the crowds do and sit by silently, but instead call it for what it is, seek to intervene even at great personal cost, because God counts us guilty if we know it is going on and we remain silent. But in concluding this part of the message on Thou shalt not commit or commit murder. Let me remind you of the example of Saul. We are treating this as the most serious of human sins, apart from that sin which is failing to regard Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the sin, having committed which, people will not gain eternal life. Those who do not recognize Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have no hope of salvation. But, We see in Scripture, if you have committed murder, there is hope for salvation. This does not mean hope for escape from justice on this earth. But we see in the example of Saul, who stood by silently, holding the cloaks while Stephen was murdered, that God took this man and made him into Paul, who went throughout the known world, spreading the message of Jesus Christ. God's forgiveness is available for murderers. And you and I need to remember this whenever we look at any part of these Ten Commandments or any other law on God's book. There is no sin for which there is not forgiveness if we will trust in Jesus Christ. We treat this extremely seriously because God treats it seriously. But remember that God's grace reigns supreme. And this is the message that you and I must proclaim. For those who think to themselves, I am beyond forgiveness. There is no such thing on this side of the grave. We need to remember this, to proclaim it, to live it out. Not only in the words that we share with other people, but also in the in the hard attitudes that we have, for instance, for people who are in the news who have committed murder, we cannot hate them. We must desire for them to know Christ and find eternal life and eternal salvation. Let's pray. Dear Father, we ask that you would impress upon our hearts those messages of your word, that we would live as you would have your people live, that we would glorify you in all things that we would be as you have told us to be people who love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Prevent us from being those who hate and persecute and revenge, seek revenge on others. Instead, make us like Christ, who being reviled, reviled not back. 
He did not speak with hatred back to those who spoke with hatred to him, but instead asked you for your forgiveness for them, even upon the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.